0: Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Scripture reading this morning will be taken from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. be reading from the New King James Version. Therefore, whoever bears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And he did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Please be seated. Good morning. Last night someone asked me if I was going to preach this morning on Proverb 31. And uh, I, I might have done that. That's not what I'm going to do. But I want to start by welcoming, again, all of you who are here. And as I look over this crowd of people, it's almost as if we've exchanged half of our membership for a different half, because we have so many who are traveling and so many who have come in to be with their mothers. And I'm just so glad that you're here. I want to, naturally, I want to talk about mothers from the Bible today in this sermon. But I want you to know there are so many ways to go about this. What I want to talk about today is, is first just just how interesting the mothering process was in the Bible. You go to the Hebrews women, the, the Israelite women in Exodus chapter one, and it, it seems like that the, the birthing process was sort of a community thing. The women would come together for midwifery, and they would help the woman, and it was sort of a a binding, strengthening thing for the women to do. I mean, you have Exodus chapter 1, and when Pharaoh wants to kill the male babies, what does he do? And the answer is he goes and he finds the Hebrew midwives. Who are they? It's not a hospital, you know. They're just women in the community that come and help to do this. And apparently, they named the babies... This is how it was when my mother was a child in Middle Tennessee, in the country out there. There was a woman who would come and she would help birth the baby, and then it was her privilege to name the babies. But it was okay because she was very, very good at it, you know. she Her own children, I'm told, and this has been passed down through the years, was Unavi and Lazavi, or the other pronunciation, Lazavi. I'm not sure which. A couple of twins were born and one of them was called Buna Mazola and the other was called Beulah Magnolia. I told you, she was good at it. That's, that's how she got that job. When you get to Ruth chapter 4 and verse 17, you have the discussion of the birth of Obed. And the Bible says that the neighboring women came together and they named Obed. I assume that what they did is to Practice midwifery. They came in and helped with the birthing process, and then they named the baby, and the baby's name was Obed. And mothers, we know, are, are very protective of their children. When you talk about Exodus chapter 2 and the birth of Moses, and you see Jochebed there, and you just your heart aches for her because the babies, the male babies are being murdered. They're being slain. And her baby was born right about that time. And wouldn't you hate that? The timing was awful. And she took and she made an ark out of bulrushes and pitched to within, within and without, but pitch to make it watertight. And she just floated in the Nile there among the reeds in hopes that nobody would find the baby. She could keep the baby. And you wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? Yonder comes the princess of all people. She finds that little ark and she opens it up and the baby begins to cry. But There's Miriam and Jochabed had planted the sister Miriam, ran up and said, well, this is one of the Hebrew children. You know what? I, I could get you a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby for you. What do you think about that? Oh I think that's a wonderful idea. Great idea. Tell her that I'll pay her her wages if she'll come and do that for me. And so Jochebed, the mother of Moses, and by the way Moses means I drew her out of the, uh, drew him out of the water. I'll pay her wages for doing this. The baby's mother is going to protect that baby. It's just as natural as can be. When you read in your Old Testament about the awful practice of child sacrifice at the the idol of Molech, Isn't it interesting that you don't find a mother doing that? Every example of it is a man, every single one. You never. I don't know if I'm making too much out of that, but I can tell you it was never a a woman, a mother, who did that. That's never recorded. Ronald Reagan said this, no mother would ever willingly sacrifice her sons for territorial gain, for economic advantage, for ideology. I'm sure he was right about that. And good mothers always want to take care of their children spiritually too. Isn't that true? Good mothers do. So when you read in First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, you, you find that Paul referred to himself as, as the father in the faith or that Timothy was his son in the faith. Well, if that's true, Timothy's mother in the faith was his mom. And his grandmother. So you get to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and about verse 5. And and the the Bible says, Paul says, I see in you, Timothy, this wonderful faith, this unfeigned faith. But I've seen it before. I saw it first in your mother Eunice and in your grandmother Lois. I'm persuaded in you also. Now, I would like to take a parenthetical note here. And that is that some of you in this room are grandparents. A lot of us are are blessed to be grandparents. Grandparents. When some of you have grandchildren whose parents are not Christians or not faithful Christians. There's a great responsibility on your shoulders. Oh, Oh, you may not be able to make the difference, but maybe you can. And anytime you have those children, you make sure that you're filling them up with the word of God every time you have them. Every time, if you know what, if you have to drive 20 miles on the Lord's day to make sure you pick them up and bring them to worship, otherwise they won't get to come to worship in the Lord's church. You make sure you do that. And I know that you would. And when you have them at your house and they spend the night, make sure that you always have family Bible time and make sure that in your house, Jesus lives. Now, look, I know that that's not a guarantee. And I know parents have more influence than grandparents typically, but I can tell you this through my life. I've known a lot of folks and haven't you who are Christians, faithful adult Christians, and, and they would attribute their faith to the influence of that grandmother. And I know grandfathers are terribly important. I would, I would like to emphasize that. But, but frankly, I, the most I've heard in my life have been grandmama. Grandmama was the one who made sure we were in worship. She's the one who took us to vacation Bible school. She was the one that made sure we always learned about Jesus. Don't minimize grandparents. Don't minimize. If you, if you've got your grandchildren around you, you be sure you use whatever influence you've got to its fullest extent. Bring those kids up in the nurse to admonition of the Lord. You influence those kids. And the Bible says that from a child, Timothy knew the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. Where'd that come from? It came from his mama and it came from his grandmother. And good mothers are like that. Good mothers want to raise their children with spiritual strength. But what I came to talk about this morning was, I'm going to talk about four mothers. And for those of you who are keeping notes, it won't be difficult at all. And this, this is the, the direction I want to go. I want to talk about mothers who had challenges. And I, I, I know, I know all, all mothers have some challenges. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the ones who have serious challenges. The Bible is a remarkable book because it it doesn't just show you the good stuff. It shows you some horrific stuff and sometimes problems inside of families. And I want to show you some mothers who had real challenges and see if we can make some lessons applicable to us today. Here's the first one. The first one is Eve, the mother who didn't have a mother. Now You know how this discussion goes in creation And and you know that the devil didn't go to Adam first to tempt him, he first went to Eve, which is very interesting to me. And he used things which he knew would be persuasive to a woman, and he appealed he appealed to her senses as a woman, and she yielded to that, and then she gave the fruit to Adam and he sinned. The Bible says in first Timothy chapter two and verse fourteen that Adam was not deceived, it was Eve who was deceived in the transgression. She was the one who was deceived. How would you like to bear that burden on your shoulders? She was the one who introduced sin into this world. We do not bear the guilt of Adam and Eve's sin, but we certainly suffer the consequences in that there was the beginning point. There was the introduction of sin into the world, and it was on the shoulders of Eve. Now, it was Eve who introduced then, as a punishment to her, introduced pain and childbearing, right? And yet, there is... It is not hard for me to stand here this morning and have sympathy for Eve as a mother. I mean, you think about this? Eve didn't have a mother. There wasn't anybody who predated her. She was, here's Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20. She was the mother of all living. That is to say that, that there was nobody that preceded her, right? And, and the point is that what, I mean, what, what, what was she going to do when, when her baby was colicky? What was she, go, who was she going to call and say, what, how did you do? What, what did you do about this when her baby was teething and she didn't know because there was some fever going on and the baby was crying all the time? Who did she call about that? And when she had all of those questions, the questions, who did she talk to? And the answer is you got to pity her. You, you and I today feel sorry for her because she didn't have anybody to call. And sometimes that's true with mothers today. And, and perhaps in this room we have several. And you don't have a mother. Now sometimes that's because of spiritual reasons. I mean you take Ruth for example. Ruth's mother was a Moabitess. And when, when it came right down to it she wasn't going to call her mama. She, she was going to call her mother-in-law. And why is that? Well you remember when it came time to make a decision she was going to stick with Naomi. Why? Because Naomi had... Jehovah God in her. She had Jehovah God. Ruth's mother was a Moabitess. She was a pagan woman. I'm sure she loved her. I'm sure she dearly loved her. But when it came down to it, she, whether you, whether thou lodgest, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I want that. I, I want that. And surely that had something to do with, with how she would raise her future children if she had any. And so she did. And so she did. Sometimes a woman doesn't have a mother to call because of spiritual reasons. Sometimes it's because she's been deprived of that wonderful relationship because her mother has died. And maybe that's descriptive of you. Here's what I want to say. 1 Timothy chapter 2, or Titus rather, chapter 2, talks about this. And in this room... For those of you who are members of the West Huntsville family, in this room, we have lots of older women. And the Bible describes it this way. Now, I, I want the older women to teach the younger women, Titus chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4, teach the younger women to love their husbands. Look at the categories of things that the, the older women are the younger women about. It's just about this thing I'm talking about, that the older women teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet and chaste and good and keepers of the home. That the word of God be not blasphemed. So here, uh, listen, older women. I mean, if, if anybody will admit to that. Make yourself available. That the idea isn't that you force this on a younger woman. But in this church, we have so many young families. What a great blessing. I'm never bothered by babies crying when I'm preaching. I never am. I'm always thankful for it. I'm thankful for every baby in this church and every child. I mean, I'm not talking about forcing it. I'm just saying we've got a lot of young mothers. And wouldn't it be great for some of our older mothers to say, to pick you one out who you think might, might could you, maybe maybe her mama is far, far away living. That's not so uncommon, is it? And say, Would you, won't you bring the children over tomorrow? Let's have lunch. I'll make some sandwiches. And just get to know that person. The... the, the, the Objective would be that one day when that younger mother needs some advice, you'll already have a relationship and she'll feel comfortable talking to you. Could you help me with this? You know what? That's the way the Bible describes it's supposed to work. So here's number one. It's Eve, the mother who didn't have a mother. Here's number two. This is going to be Sarah. And Sarah is the mother with a stepchild. I'm in Genesis chapter 16 now in verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. You know, a surrogate relationship. Now, I've done some reading about this, and in countries where polygamy is practiced, it's not so terribly uncommon that a woman would agree to or present a secondary wife, and perhaps for this reason of childbearing, a secondary wife to her husband. It's as wrong as it can be. Now, I don't mean to suggest otherwise, but I'm just saying that apparently is what Sarah has in mind, that this is something she's seen done before, and she'll provide the surrogate. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, you remember when that probably happened, when they were in Egypt and all of that. And gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. You ever wonder about that? Apparently it's it barely is just this, that, that Sarah is the real wife. She's just the secondary wife, but now there's some equality between them about the privilege of Abraham's bed. But not just that. Hagar is her superior in reference to being able to conceive and bear children. Sarah's not able to do that. And so now it seems like this Egyptian maid is sort of feeling her oats and now she feels more power. And so she she's saying what she wants to to the mistress. She's saying what she wants to to Sarah. She's despised in her eyes. Maybe she feels like she could replace Sarah. Then Sarah said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. This is your fault. That's a stretch. I mean, he, he did agree to it, so he's culpable too. But I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abram said to Sarah, indeed your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. I'll give her back to you. I, it's okay. You know what? I, I'm loyal to you. You're my wife, and, and I, that's always going to be true. And so you can have her back. Just take her back do whatever you want. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I'll multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for the multitude. And then he described the life of Ishmael and how that's going to be. Sarah has a stepson. This is, this is so terribly common in our country. And, and sometimes a person who has a stepchild is a very faithful Christian. And so it's, it's really worth our describing, discussing right here. Sometimes, sometimes it's about advice about how to handle this. Uh here's some statistics. So according to the American Institute for Family Studies, 50.6% of graduating high school seniors uh, are living with both their biological parents who are married. This the nuclear family, 50 point six percent. Just half, half. Forty percent of families in America today are blended families. OK? 1300 step families are be, being created in America every day, 1300. So this is something worthy of our discussion. What you have here is Sarah, who has a step son. Now, let me make some suggestions. Here they are. Number one, if you're in this circumstance, if you have a stepchild or stepchildren. Ensure that every child in your home has access and encouragement in spiritual things. We're not going to make a distinction in this. My my house is a place where Jesus lives. And you make sure that whatever influence you have, you use that in the life of that child to raise him or her up. And I mean, I know that you've got a separate family somewhere. And so you won't you won't have all the time, but whatever time you've got, you may sure, sure you dedicate it to training that child in the things of the Lord. Spiritually maximize your time with the children who are in your home. So at night, we're going to have family Bible time. Now, I, look, I know. I know what you're saying to the children. I know. You don't do that when you're over at the other house. I know that. But when you're at our house... We're going to have family Bible time every night, and every person's going to participate the same. We're all going to pray together. We're all going to sing together. We're all going to learn about the Word of God. Three, be kind and show agape to all the rest of the, the adults in that child's life. That's going to be tough. How do you reckon Sarah did on that one? Hmm? Come on. She she failed on that one. She she was miserable on that one. She couldn't bear that Egyptian maid, even though the whole thing was her idea to begin with. She's having a tough time. Sarah was having a bad time. Look, I know there are many kinds of supports you probably won't be able to, to contribute to that person or those persons because there may just may be wrought with sin. You can't endorse everything about that. But bear in mind the importance in that child's life and do your best when you bow your head to pray that you include that person in that prayer. When those children are listening, be sure that you don't exclude that person. Now, you can't... I know that it's going to have to be mitigated by the fact that there's sin going on when there is, but you be careful to, to protect the feelings of that child in, a, in an appropriate way. And here's number four. Make sure your stepchildren are honored and cared for in the same way as your other children. Don't you be, don't you be excluding the birthday parties for the one that's your stepchild. You be sure that you have those birthday parties. You be sure that what you do is find trips that you can take to, to, to learn about and find more things that are interesting to that ch- stepchild, uniquely interested. Well, I'm interested too, so let's go do this tomorrow. We'll go do it together. And we'll learn more about that. And then devotedly maintain your commitment to Jesus Christ. Listen, I know, I know if you're in this, that what's going on is very, very hard. But in heaven, there are no step-families. There are no step-children, no step-parents in heaven. That doesn't exist anymore. It's just for a while here. So do your dead-level best to bring those children to heaven with you. And then you won't worry about this anymore. It'll all be in the past. You won't, you know, First Peter chapter 1 says, there, there's nothing in heaven to defile it. Nothing there. All right, here's number three. The third mother is Rebecca. Rebecca is the mother who loved one of her children more than the other one. I want to go, I want to go with you now to Genesis chapter 25. Let's start in 21. Genesis 25 verse 21. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. She had twins in her. And she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went and inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So when her days... Now get that. The older will serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel so that his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Now, you might want to underline verse 28. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob, I don't know what that's doing to you when you read that verse, but it just sends chills all over me. I mean, you, you, this is, this has got bad trouble written all over it. We cannot do this. Parents, we cannot do this. You cannot, if you, if you ever have in your heart this idea about, I have a favorite child, don't you let anybody know. You keep that deep inside of you, and don't you ever let anybody know about that. Maybe the Lord, but nobody else. Can you imagine being, growing up in a family where you believe this? And sometimes children believe it about their parents, even though their parents may not be overtly showing it. But, the, you know, sometimes a child thinks, he loves, he loves my brother more than me, and that's a terrible thing to grow up with. That'll influence the way a child lives. And that's what happened with Rebecca. Now, let's make some suggestions about this. First of all, if if you feel this some days, I don't want you to get too excited. I don't want to overshoot my skis on this. I don't want to say... I mean, there, there are going to be days, I think, in the natural course of things, if you have more than one child, that some days you're going to know that that this child is more compliant, more obedient, easier to get along with, no problems here, and this other one is the opposite of that. And so there are going to be some days when you struggle like that. Just make sure... That if you show a particular kind of attention to one of them one day, that tomorrow you make it, you'd make a deliberate decision. I'm going to show that kind of attention to this one. I'm going to make sure I balance that out. Two, if you have a favorite, don't express it. Keep it to yourself. Three, don't say things that can be interpreted to show favoritism. Don't say something like, and if you've ever said this, just, just regret it, I guess. (laughs) If you've ever, don't ever say, Why can't you be more like your sister? And understand what you know. You say, well, why can't that be good? Because her sister's so well behaved. And isn't that a good example? Well, that's a good example, all right. But what you're doing is more than that. What you're saying is, I really favor your sister over you. Don't do that. Don't do that. Number next don't give material expressions of favoritism. Remember the coat of many colors? How'd that work out? Mm. Yeah, we don't want to do that. Don't you be doing that. Be careful about that. And, and uh, you know, you, you'll be fine, of course. We'll all be fine about this. We just have to be cognizant of it and make sure we don't trip over and make these mistakes. When a child is struggling, spend extra time to get involved and learn how to be, better relate. Find out what he or she really likes and pursue that with them. Get to know that so that you get to know them and find times quiet times when you can talk. That's going to be important. And work to punish all children consistently. Don't communicate favoritism through how you punish. All right, here's the last one, number four. Bathsheba. And so 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we go for this last one. You remember David and Bathsheba and how that went. And so David... Well, here's Second Samuel 11, verse 2. It happened one evening that David rose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. He lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived... And she sent and told David and said, I'm with child. Bathsheba is the mother who has to live with the sins of the past. Now, look, I, I, the, the, I'm, not, uh, I'm not in any way erasing the fact that David has the greater sin here. And I do not know, and we could talk about this sometime, I do not know how, how to relate to what Bathsheba did. I, I can tell you that it bothers me when I study this and I think about Bathsheba, that she didn't cry out. There were servants that were near David. We know that already. And yet she didn't cry out. And she should have done that. I think that we make a mistake, of course, to, to look at Joseph and Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife. And we, we brag about Joseph because he just, he just walked away from her. Well, bear in mind that Potiphar's wife owns him. It's not so different from the fact that David is the king and Bathsheba is a subject. And we kind of give her a pass on that. But, the fact of the matter is that she must bear, it seems to me, some culpability, some something in this. Whatever is the case about this, I can tell you that what's about to happen is that she's with child and David starts to try to cover it up. And You know how that played out. So at first he tried to somehow bring Uriah in from the battle and make it look like he's the father of the child. That didn't work out. That didn't work out. And so ultimately he kills Uriah. He sends Uriah to the hottest battle and then he has his, has his guys back off. And of course, immediately Uriah is killed and it's a done deal. I mean, he's, he's completely dead. He's dead. And so there is a day when Bathsheba is going to stand next to the grave of her husband, Uriah. And she knows what has happened and she knows the baby that she carries is not his. And she may even know that David's the one who did this or at least suspected. She carries a terrible burden. And then what happens is the baby is born and, and the baby dies as a consequence of the sin. And you can read in First Samuel chapter 1 and, and, and she's going to be there and mourn the loss of her child, but she will do it with the baggage of the sin that she was involved in in this adultery. Mm. David figures he's got it fixed now, but of course he doesn't. And in chapter twelve, second Samuel twelve, you have you have Nathan the prophet come and talk to him, and David gives it up. He he just confesses it. So you read Psalm fifty-one and you have David pleading. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with my sin is ever before me. That's what David said. And sometimes sometimes a woman is a mother who carries a heavy weight. And now I'm going to use this illustration for this point. A heavy weight of sin behind her. Now let's make some suggestions. If that is you, remember that you can't change the past. But you can decide your future. Look to the future. Be a faithful Christian. Forgiveness is sweet, but holiness is better. Live a life of holiness. You cannot change what happened. You cannot even change much about the impact of that, how it's going to play out. There's ripples after that rock drops in that pond, and that's true about Bathsheba. It's true about David and Bathsheba, and it may be true in your life. You can live a faithful Christian life from this point on, though. You show your children what it's like to truly repent and be be the right kind of person. You can do that. Number two, break the cycle of sexual sin in your family. Looking back and you say, yeah, but that's, I can tell you how my mother was and my father was and my grandmother was, and there's all these stories. Well, you know what? It's time for that chain to break, and it's on you. You break the chain. You break it. Concentrate on making your home an environment that fosters sexual purity. We're going to be careful about what we watch on TV. We're going to be careful about how we use our devices. We're going to be careful about streaming movies and what kind of content. We're going to be careful about social media, all this stuff. And when my children become teenagers and they want to date, I'm going to decide when they date. Then I'm going to have the rules and we're going to have curfews and we're going to make sure that they dress modestly and we're going to do all of those things. You know why? Because the chain is broken here. I'm telling you, we're going to stop this in this generation because that's on me. Number next. Remember, even if you're married to an unbeliever. First Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7 is about this. If you are married, if you're a Christian and you're married to somebody who's not a Christian, I just want you to know that 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7 is your passage. It's on this. It's specifically about addressing this. And and the wives are still to be submissive to their husbands in uh, all things, except that which would conflict with the will of Jesus Christ. Show a meek and quiet spirit. And then number four, here's the last one. Take comfort in Scripture. Take comfort in the Scripture. All things work together for good to them that are Love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. Take comfort in that. Take a big comfort in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. the fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. There's a list will inherit the kingdom of God. You can't go to heaven like that. And such, he says to these Christians, and such were some of you. But you're washed and you're sanctified and you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Take comfort in that. Take comfort in that. That's what I was. That's not what I am. Many people in this church have young children. I don't know the exact number. I just know that we're... So thankful for that. So many young families. And right now what you're doing is is uh, active. You're creating a scrapbook for your children so that you can remember all of these t-ball games and all of these piano practices, all the exciting things that are going on in your children's lives. Remember this. The youth is very fleeting. It's wonderful, but it's fleeting. I speak from experience. The most important thing of all is going to heaven and taking your children with you. Don't waste the time. Be sure that every day, every day, you're loving those babies. And you're filling them up with the word of God. You're filling them up with a love for Jesus Christ. You're filling them up with a commitment and dedication to the Lord's church, which is his bride. Train them to love it. Be faithful to all the assemblies. Be faithful to Bible class all the time. Get them involved in things. Isn't it a great thing for our parents to be training their children and the kids saying things we're doing and lads to leaders and all the different things? What are you doing? I'm raising Christians. Because our children must know that true success is, is living your life and going to heaven. Right? And our objective, parents, our objective is to raise happy, faithful, productive Christians. I'm so thankful for every mother in this room. I know that we have great mothers. Nothing I've said today is to disagree with that. I love them. They're wonderful, wonderful, doing such a great job. But I also know that some mothers do what they do under the duress of unique challenges, just like Eve or Sarah or Rebecca or Bathsheba. God bless you. God bless you. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. I wonder if there's someone here who would like to obey the gospel. Would you like to start your Christian walk? Wouldn't now be a great time. If you want to study about this, if you're not quite ready, but you want to know more, I'll be happy to study with you. But if you're ready to repent of your sins and confess Jesus, we'll immerse you in water today for the remission of your sins. If you need the prayers of Christians, we'll be so glad to do that with you for whatever reason. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.